Exploring Chiropractic, episode 33, with recent grad, Dr. Stephen Lasky. Hey guys, I'm absolutely loving Blinkist. Blinkist takes great works of nonfiction, classics like Seven Habits of Highly Effective People or Simon Sinek's Start With Why, and it summarizes it down, distills it into two-minute blinks, which are summaries of the memorable key messages of the book. So I know you guys are busy, you're in school, you've got a lot of reading to do, but you've also got to keep up on what's going on in the world of business, psychology, leadership. Blinkist will help you do it in a fraction of the time. Check it out at exploringchiropractic.com forward slash B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist, a smarter you in 15 minutes. Welcome back to Exploring Chiropractic. In this episode, I'm pleased to uh, introduce you to Stephen Lasky. Um, Stephen, we met, I believe it was originally in Washington, D.C. this past year. Yes, I believe it was. So we were at NCLC. Um, we were trying to do a podcast there, but I don't think we ever arranged it because that's a, that's a hectic few days. Yeah, those those days were were pretty busy. I remember uh, us bumping into each other, and we had spoken about trying to arrange a time. But I remember I kind of kept darting off trying to keep my uh, the group I brought down from NYCC with me to uh, keep them relatively contained with all the the madness that goes on down there during those three four days. Were you kind of in charge of the trip that time? Uh, I would say I was one of the one of the few leaders we usually bring down. We kind of try to space out most of the responsibility through our e-board um, at NYCC. But for the most part, um, our team is always, you know, very well prepared. They have a really good idea of what's going on um, ahead of time on the bus down. We plan everything out for the events that they, you know, should obviously make it a key point to attend. And then once things, they can kind of pop off on their own. I've got a few episodes that we recorded there at NCLC, so our listeners can go check that out. Um, and I've also had your colleagues, classmates, uh, Brendan McCann and Seth Wittrell on the podcast to talk about NYCC. So we're not going to dive in too much to your experience in school, uh, but you just graduated, right? Yes, I actually just graduated this past December. Um, so that was a pretty exciting and hectic month all at the same time, but a lot of a lot of good stuff coming out of it so far. That's awesome. Why did you end up choosing NYCC? Uh, I actually chose... NYCC for a couple different reasons. I had applied to a few of the schools, um, NYCC being one of them, a couple out on the West Coast. And I wanted to stay relatively close to home um, for one of the main reasons. But then also I, between those other schools I was looking at on the West Coast, NYCC kind of provided the best foundation for what I was looking for to kind of help steer my chiropractic career as I had you know, just started essentially. And I, I felt like NYCC gave me the best all around uh, foundation to put down for it. So going into school, did you have an idea of how you wanted to kind of specialize once you graduated? Uh, I had a very, very rough idea. I had a couple of key concepts I was 
messing around with in my head. I knew I had always been very interested in sports chiropractic, uh, nutrition, those fields. So I kind of wanted to start gearing it towards that off the bat. But I would say that once my um, my time at NYCC kind of started to just grow organically, it, it store, started to shift itself into different you know pathways, a little bit more of the evidence-based practice kind of really became a big passion for me. Um, and the uh, advocacy for, you know, SACA, the ACA, the whole profession kind of grew naturally during my time there as well. Okay. So how, how much would you say your, your vision of how you would practice changed over those few years? Um, I would say it hasn't changed drastically, but I would definitely say it's been influenced and my premise for what I want to focus on in practice has been, has been restructured a bit. Okay. So what do you mean by that? What, how would you describe kind of your focus now? I would say that it's, well, through my internship with Don Murphy over the, over the fall, um, it's, it's become a little bit more evidence-based practice in terms of like protocols and, and treatment concepts and what to do for certain patients. I would say that it's not just, you know, very like, you know, get a patient and very uh, in-depth of, of manipulation or adjusting or things like that. Okay. I've been reading Don Murphy's textbooks, the, the Clinical Reasoning and Spine Pain. Uh, I've got a video on my YouTube channel coming out, just kind of a review going through that. Uh, what was your experience like working with him for the past, I guess it was the last trimester? Yeah, so the whole last trimester in the fall. Um, the experience with Dr. Murphy is, it's a great one. I would recommend to anybody who is interested in evidence-based practice or has read uh, either one of the Chris books, one or two, um, to get in touch with him and seek out any opportunity to go visit there because I had the the chance to be there from September through uh, just about Thanksgiving, essentially. And seeing the type of patients that come into that clinic, um, most of which are predominantly uh, medical referrals, he actually just joined a fairly good-sized hospital-based system in Rhode Island, and he's the uh, medical director of their now spine program. So things were pretty crazy um, when I was there in terms of, you know, getting settled in. But uh, the patients, you know, they come in with, you know, the majority of low back, neck complaints, headaches, things like that. And it's just the the system that he applies to evaluating them, being very thorough um, in terms of their treatment, the management. He's very, very good about, you know, keeping up with their PCPs and uh, coordinating care. So it's, it was a great learning experience and learning how to make all that run smoothly, effectively, and also seeing how to, you know, redirect your care with the patient, whether it's low back and you think it's one thing, and then you go to through two or three days worth of treatment trying to figure out, you know, whether it's a disc, if you're not quite sure, and then realizing it's actually an SI kind of bordering on the two, you know? So teasing those little, little clinical tidbits that was a, a huge huge helpful tool for me uh i'm hoping to have dr murphy on the podcast we've been in touch and we're just trying to nail down a date that works for both of us uh, mm -hmm. but but for those who aren't familiar with the crisp protocols 
Can you give an overview of what that's like? Like, how is it different than, say, the traditional, uh, maybe personal injury clinic or, or the you know the clinic where you go in and all the doctors doing is adjusting? Um, what is that like from kind of beginning to end in a general fashion? So to start off, obviously, a patient would come in with uh, their new patient forms, history, all that. And before we go in to see them, we would obviously, you know, do a run through through the what information they've already given us, their complaint, things like that. And then what I would do as the intern is he would uh, essentially drop me off in the room with the patient. I would go through, take the history, get their findings, stuff like that, um, try to hone in on what potentially was the pain generating factor or the issue for them. Uh, I would take their vitals after that, do some blood pressure, temperature, things like that. Uh, and then run through a complete neuro exam with them. And once I was finished with all those, I would head back out, excuse myself and chat with Dr. Murphy about what we thought was going on. And he would kind of, you know, clinically grill me a little bit just to kind of tease out what I thought would be the most likely, uh, situation going on with that patient and then he would ask me questions you know are there any red flags that stand out that are pertinent with this patient like if they've had a, a past history of melanoma or anything we would obviously want to grab details about those things make sure that they're not you know um going to coincide with anything that the patient's presenting with or what have you um and then he would go back in with me and go through his orthopedic exams because in Rhode Island it's a little bit different. They don't let interns do any actual hands-on work. So I didn't get to do any mm. physical adjusting or treatment while I was there. Um, so he would go in there, do all the actual uh, testing, palpation, things like that, take them through some uh, end range loading exams, you know, some McKenzie procedures and joint palpation, kind of figure out which was which rule out, you know, SI from joint from disc, uh, any, uh, uh, radiculopathy testing with like nerve tension signs, all those kinds of things. Um, and I would sit there and kind of try to evaluate his thought process through what he was doing, watching him and kind of start making my own connections through everything as well. Um, so we would go through those and that would really be the second factor um, after the red flags concept. And then while we're all sitting there talking to the patient, we try to keep track of any biopsychosocial factors or, um, perpetuating conditions that might be exacerbating the patient's chronic pain if it's been something they've been dealing with for, let's say, like the last two to three years. How would you uncover those yellow flags? So the yellow flags are a little tricky from patient to patient. Um, it really depends on sometimes just the subtleties of how they say things in their history to you. And then some things could also be as subtle as seeing how they respond or write down their responses to uh, questionnaires um, in the new patient forms, like um, a functional uh, index question. You know, it's like something that they can't do. It's like haven't been able to do laundry for like a month straight and just getting like frustrated with that or things like that. Um, so their, their perception of things coming into the exam and also their perception during and after is a, is a big thing as, as well, I'd say. This is one of the aspects uh, that I find myself struggling with more and more uh, as I've been reading the crisp books. I'm about six months into practice now, uh, but mm -hmm. it seems like those yellow flags, those psychosocial factors are 
uh, number one, it depends a lot on the personality of the patient. Right. Uh, but it's also those those keywords that you have to look for throughout the entire interaction. Uh, and it may just be that I'm still fresh and still focusing on, okay, what's the next orthopedic exam that I should do in this case? Uh, any tips that you picked up from, from Dr. Murphy on how to kind of filter those out and how to really pick up on them? Uh, definitely a lot of tips I, I, I could kind of jostle through in my mind. I mean, there were Honestly, when I first got to the clinic, the first two weeks when I was there, I would come home to my apartment here in Providence and I would literally just sit down because my head hurt from trying to absorb like all the information, like just trying to figure out his system, what he was doing and what we were looking for necessarily. And the couple of days where he would ask me questions and I was still trying to get used to, you know, what he was doing. And I would sit there and not be entirely sure of how to respond. Um, they were tricky, but the i guess the best thing i would say to look for would be just how the patient reacts to you and your questioning essentially especially if they're a patient who's a little bit more on the skeptical side of chiropractic that you've either never been to a chiro before or they've had previous treatment or they've had lots of previous treatment from other providers whether they're mds you know they're neurosurgeon if they've had past surgeries or physical therapy or anything like that um so i would say that just being cognizant of those prior experiences is a big one um i would also say that being aware of the fact that you know patient compliance is something you need to reaffirm very often especially after the first two or three days because some patients a little bit more you know keen to the idea it's like okay well now i have these two or three rehab exercises for home care and i'm still not seeing any changes it's you have to remind them it's like hey you've had this problem for you know six to eight months already it's going to take a little bit of time to undo just like it took a little bit of time to progress to the point where it was causing you pain or now is an issue um so that was a big thing i would say also okay one thing I always say about chiropractic is that it's um, one one reason I got into it was because there's so many opportunities to do many things. So there's over 300 named techniques, uh, right? Just chiropractic techniques. But then more and more I'm seeing uh, some overlap with physical therapy. So we're bringing in, you mentioned McKenzie or end range loading, uh, a lot of rehab how do these other techniques, maybe I could mention things like ART, can these fit into the CRISP protocols? Would would they be separate from the CRISP protocols? Or, or how does a clinician who's kind of done all these other seminars pick up uh, in the CRISP uh, technique or in protocols? I would honestly say that the CRISP protocols are they would serve best as a blueprint for any chiropractor or, or spinal provider. If that's what we wanted to focus on because what they give you is the essentials basically. And it teaches you how to obviously look for the big red flags, identify what your pain generating source is or your, you know, your problematic issue is, and then identify any perpetuating or exacerbating factors. So you have those three laid out in front of you. And then things like, uh, ART or McKenzie, if you happen to be a provider who focuses really big on those, can be 
kind of sprinkled on essentially is like seasoning for your, for your steak. Um, but the thing is soft tissue techniques are fantastic. They have their place, especially if, you know, the main condition happens to be or truly be like a, a soft tissue complaint. Um, but what I found is, you know, a lot of patients who do have those soft tissue problems are, are typically secondary to something else going on, whether it's a disc or a radiculopathy, something. Um, so they have their place. But unless you're teaching your patient how to either perform those soft tissue techniques on themselves, you're still creating that passive response on them need to rely on you to treat their problem. And I think that's one of the biggest issues that a lot of new students will probably face, including myself, is we need to act as facilitators for patients more than just passive problem solvers. We have to teach them how to identify their problems, how to treat them on their own, and to identify what they can manage in terms of the skills that we give them through treatment when it finishes, and how to identify, sorry, how to identify something that they aren't able to take care of and they should come back and see an appropriate provider to take care of or reassess or see if there's something new going on. That's awesome. I love that. I love thinking of crisp as the blueprint and then all of these techniques as the seasoning and then the doctor as the facilitator. There's a lot of emphasis on, uh, at least in the first book, I haven't quite actually dug into the second one, but Dr. Murphy's, uh, really kind of one of the the lead proponents for the primary spine practitioner focus. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is that idea of being uh, a facilitator and providing active care is really important. What are your thoughts on, on that primary spine approach? I am all for the primary spine uh, framework of, of care and treatment. Um, I would actually say that if you get the opportunity to dive into the second book, the second book is great. It focuses on uh, cervical disorders. There's a, a chapter or two about thoracic, <clears throat> excuse me, about thoracic issues as well. Um, and then the last, I'd say, the last quarter of the book is actually a decent amount of case studies where you get um, actual patient presentations he's had over the past and he basically takes you through a run through of, you know, what they came in, how the history presented, um, all the objective findings, the treatments as it progressed, uh, through their, the patient's time with him. And it gives you this, this kind of little back and forth in your head as you're reading. It's like, okay, I think this is going to be the issue. And you get to flip the page, obviously see what it turns out to be. And then you can kind of stay aware of these other like biopsychosocial factors you're identifying as you read them. The whole, primary spine practitioner framework um is is great i was actually listening to another podcast on the way back up to providence today um the chiropractic science and i was flipping through a few of those and the one with dr michael schneider where he happened to mention um dr Piskowski over in plymouth massachusetts he was a essentially one of the pioneers for the primary spine practitioner setting when he had joined Jordan Hospital over there and come in with the the PSP model. And now they have a spine center with him and six other chiropractors who do the integrative work. And that's really the key component of how the PSP functions. As Dr. Murphy had always mentioned to me and said, you know, 
the chiropractor or the PSP serves as the pit crew chief for the patient. As the, the patient's going to be the car, they're the pit crew chief. They're the one that they come to to coordinate care when they need to send out referrals for, you know, for imaging, for MRIs, for uh, epidural injections if they need them. He's the point man. He directs where the patient goes when they need it instead of this kind of skewed treatment method where a patient might go see their MD first, get a referral for PT, not have any great re- good results, come back to the MD, get a consultation for surgery. They get a surgery they might not necessarily need because they get a, well, for lack of a better term, you know, a, an inaccurate description of what's going on from an MRI. They get the surgery and then, you know, they're still in the same boat after. You see where I'm going? Yeah, that, that reminds me of a paper that I believe was written by Scott Haldeman and maybe others where they called it the marketplace idea of chiropractic. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you can walk down the aisle and there's all these different options for spine pain. Uh, And yet there's no one really guiding the patient to where they should go. So I really like that idea of having, having that pit crew chief or, or the quarterback who's calling the shots, so to speak, but still utilizing all different practitioners. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause essentially it doesn't, necessarily matter who is the one that ends up being that that golden nugget whether it's the chiro or the pt or somebody it just needs to have a streamlined and organized way to direct the patient without having this haphazard path because essentially the patient comes first and it just needs to be done in an appropriate direct manner nice speaking of this case presentations in in the second volume uh, can you think of a case that you were involved with during your time at uh, Dr. Murphy's clinic that sticks out in your mind? Oh, man. Um, there's probably a couple. Uh, I would say a few patients. One had started to receive treatment um, before I had actually come on there, but during her time there, uh, we saw her a few, a few handful of times. Um, she was a patient who, um, had been getting a lot of follow-ups for like cervical genic headaches, um, and, uh, photophobia, uh, from a past concussion. And she was very back and forth and she was fairly compliant, um, with her, her exercise, you know, in terms of, um, great exposure to like things like uh, TV and, you know, uh, amount of hours spent with the lights on, but she was also one of those that kind of went up and down just because of the nature of her injury. Um, so that was something that was, was very learning for me. Uh, another one was a established patient who comes in fairly regularly, who happens to have Parkinson's that Dr. Murphy first noticed and made the referral, uh, to the primary for, um, but during my time there, he also let me, you know, check for cogwheeling. And, and, and some of the things you learn in school, you know, you think of it as being very um, obvious and steadfast in terms of like the, the rigidity. But he goes, you know, go ahead and try it out. And the patient let me. And it's the subtlest of findings sometimes. And it's it's that clinical pearl. It's like, you know, now I know to be aware for two things, like the very broad based um, signs for it and the very, you know, not so evident um, times it comes through as well. Um, so those two were pretty, pretty big ones that I learned. Um, and honestly just learning how to do a, 
a complete neuro exam in pretty much under four minutes and what to look for and what qualifies as what kind of findings that that efficiency in terms of treating patients has been a, a huge benefit for me as well. Um, there's, there's, there's been a lot. I mean, he had me reading a, a bunch of uh, research articles in my free time between patients as well. And, um, one of the biggest things I took away right before I left was the fact that if a patient comes in with, you know, pain in the neck, pain in the low back, something, and you are having a very difficult time reproducing it, and there are even the slightest chance of them being like febrile, always, always use extreme caution because you should all keep epidural abscess in the top of your list um, for things like that as well. Because uh, in the past, he's actually has a paper on, a paper on it um, about how a patient came in like that who was febrile and then a couple of days later had gone to get the MRI the next day, two or three days later, I can't remember quite which, but the, the patient actually ended up passing away in the MRI tube. Um, so that was just kind of like, you know, wow. eye opening eye-opening reading, you know, the, how, how severely it can progress, um, in just a matter of, you know, 24, 48 hours. And it's, it's that referral that needs to be made. And in this case, it was just very unfortunate that it wasn't done quicker, but it was still sent for, and it, it showed, you know, the positive or negative outcome that you can have. That's amazing. It sounds like this opportunity that you had was, uh, very much what I think is, is lacking in chiropractic education, which is, almost that that residency, kind of the equivalent of the medical school residency where you get to see a wide variety of cases. You get to see the very severe cases like the Parkinson's you were talking about, and you get to experience those uh, those clinical findings that are quite rare in the average population. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would definitely agree that this is this is a nice little condensed form of residency, if anything. Um, because one of the days that I was with Dr. Murphy, we were discussing it actually. And if you look at the medical model, it's like, you know, you do your years of undergrad, then your four years of med school, and then you do a residency for, you know, two, three years or whatever you want. Then you have the options for fellowships even after on those. With chiropractors, we go through our three, four years of schooling, and then it's out into practice and out into the world with, I don't want to say limited clinical experience, but definitely not as much as what the the people in the MD programs typically tend to get, which is, you know, they're, they're still expected to get their time in training once they are capable of practicing, you know, it's right. expected for them to go on to continuing education. Whereas us, it's more of a, if you are interested, not because you should. Right. And there's, even if you do, any of those specialties, there's very few opportunities for a true residency program. I'm thinking mm-hmm. radiology and perhaps sports fellowships are the closest things. But if you do want to do, say, internal medicine, if you want to do uh, functional neurology, if you want to do, you know, this wide variety of of specialties that you can get further training in, um, there isn't that structure to have the experience, say, in a hospital setting or in a clinic that sees this wide variety of, of patients, unless you find a private practice that will allow you to practice um, sort of as a resident. Right. And, and that's, that's also very hard to do because if, if it was a private practice that was allowing you to do that, that private practice would more or less have to be associated with, I, I would imagine, um, a hospital in, to some degree to get that exposure to go into um, 
those facilities. And even if it's just for the sake of observation for seeing, you know, facet injections or laminectomies or something going on in the OR that, that, you know, extracurricular, um, graduate or graduate, you know, um, opportunity, if anything, it's, it's, it's hard to come by, especially for new docs, because it seems as though hospital care systems aren't as likely to want to take the chance in hiring a brand new doc, because we don't have any of the experience that those, you know, MD students who get with a residency have. So it's, it's a catch 22. Right. Definitely is. Well, now that you are graduate, you finish your preceptorship, what is next on the horizon? Uh, a couple things. So right now I have settled on going to work for World Spine Care for the next coming months. I will be their clinic supervisor down at their uh, MOCA clinic in the Dominican Republic. So that is my next, uh, my next mission for the coming months. I'm a big fan of World Spine Care and full disclosure, I help with their social media um, but I, I don't get paid or anything. And so, uh, I just heard that a new NYCC grad that had been with Don Murphy was taking over the clinic in Mocha and, uh, and found out it was you. So I thought, wow, I was going to have you on the podcast before. Let's, let's finally get it done. Yeah. How, how did you hear about World Spine Care? So I think I had actually heard about World Spine Care once briefly sometime in the middle of schooling, but, um, this past October, I actually went to the North American Spine Society Conference in Boston uh, for two or three days. Dr. Murphy was going. I wanted to go myself since it was so close to Providence, and I figured, you know, the next time I'll be able to go, it probably won't be for a while, and I can still get the student price on it. Um, always a big factor, you know. Got to get the seminars when they're cheap. Um, so I was there listening to a talk with Dr. Haldeman, um, and it actually came up through him where they dove into some of their projects they had going on, some of the research that they were presenting, um, going over the factors, you know, with low back pain being the number one disability in the world and kind of the work they're trying to do to facilitate um, primary spine care, not just, you know, in in the U.S., but in, in countries and sites where that type of care is really a type of luxury um, instead of just, you know, primary care and things like that because these these areas are – places where there's usually a lot of physical labor and manual work going on. And if you don't have the ability to move around properly or without pain, um, then that's affecting your entire life, not just, you know, your, your hobbies, let's say. Right. So it leads to a lot of, uh, time off work, not being able to provide for families. And of course there's very little healthcare insurance. And, mm -hmm. and so there's, uh, very few opportunities to get care for, uh, for those types of conditions. So, so you are, how long are you going to be staying in MOCA? So I will be leaving, uh, Monday the 30th, uh, four or five days, whatever it is. I should probably check on that. Um, I'll be leaving then starting in February. I'll be down there through July. I, they typically ask for a one year commitment, um, for clinic supervisors just because of the responsibilities and the training that has to go on. Um, but I worked with them just to kick off a six month stay just to start with, um, simply because that's more or less when the loan period ends. And I would like to be a little bit more on top of my finances before that boulder comes rolling down the mountain and I can't get out from it in under <laughs> uh, enough time. 
Well, I'm glad you brought that up because that's one of my main questions is how, um, how can an opportunity like this, which as I understand is a volunteer opportunity, uh, how is that feasible for a new student who has however many hundreds of thousands of dollars in loans? Um, it, that, that was a big decision uh, or factor in my decision-making, honestly. I mean, the opportunity itself, when I spoke with uh, Jeff Outerbridge, one of the directors for the programs, um, when him and I originally had our first Skype meeting, we went over all the, the things that would be covered running the clinic. And it was everything I wanted to hear, you know, as, as a new grad in terms of how I wanted to practice, what I'd be responsible for, the way I could practice. And I was so pumped about it. Plus, it's in a different country. But then there's also the factor that this is completely volunteer. Um, they cover your flights down and back from wherever you are in the country. Uh, they put you up for housing down in the area as well. And they give you uh, monthly reimbursements for anything that you know is pertinent, food, cost of living, things like those. Um, so they'll be taking care of me pretty well with all the necessities, everything you need to get by. Um, but like I said, you know, working for a volunteer position is is going to be very rewarding, hopefully. But at the same time, the the big, you know, blinding thing in front of you coming out of school is I have this much time to start working towards my loans. And uh, I figured an opportunity like this obviously outweighs anything that could crush me financially. <laughs> and you'll probably learn and get a lot of experience from it that will make you that much more of a... Um, an employee prospect in the future. I'm kind of hoping that would, that would be one of the key things that I, I get out of it down the line, but ideally I just, I really like the opportunity. I like the availability to work with, you know, that type of population and people who can really use whatever I can offer them in terms of being a spine care provider. Um, so it's that combination, really, that I'm looking forward to most. If if it gives me the availability um, to be viewed more by uh, hospital settings or um, any type of integrated practices when I come back to the States, whenever it ends up being, then that's just the cherry on top of the sundae. That would be awesome. Now, I assume that you speak Spanish? I took Spanish in high school, a little bit in college. Um um, I've been doing a bunch of uh, online learning the last two months, uh, trying to pick it back up. But I, I would say I have a limited working proficiency in it right now. But I'm kind of hoping once I get thrown into the fire, it'll it'll come back pretty quick. <laughs> Are you going to have any help with translation, or is it yes. pretty much just you? Yes. No. There, we do have a translator who works on site at the clinic down in Mocha. Um, so he will be <laughs> very very great asset the first couple of days and weeks, I'm sure when I'm get down there. Um, but obviously since I'll be responsible for patients, I, I'm going to try to wean myself off of him as quickly as possible, just for the sake of, you know, making the patient's experience better and making it more direct and one-on-one because I want to make sure I'm that provider who focuses on them versus having to have that little trifecta going on in the room. Well, if you'd like, I've got uh, two recommendations. One is the Duolingo app for Spanish. I love that one. That one is, is great. Yeah, fun to use and really helpful. And uh, and I do have a a copy of 
Spanish for chiropractors, I believe, somewhere really? on my computer. So, uh, yeah, I'll send you that MP3 because it takes you through the more relevant words, you know, the clinical terms that oh, you yeah. need to know. Um, and it, it's funny, I took Spanish in high school. I speak Portuguese fluently, or at least I did at one point. Um, but, you know, you're in that clinical setting, and even though you may know the translation of a lot of anatomical terms, uh, there's there's still a lot lost in translation because of the culture. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things I find so interesting about World Spine Care and some of the papers they've shared uh, on the cultural transition. Uh, and so one thing I read in one of their papers is the Wong Baker scale. So this is the the five smiley faces to indicate how much okay. it hurts. Uh, a lot of people use the scale of zero to 10. This is five faces going from very happy to very anguished or sad. Mm-hmm. And for most people, it you know you look at it and you're like, oh yeah, I'm kind of right about here. Not too hangry, not too happy. Um, but in Botswana, it doesn't work. Those faces don't translate. And so they actually yeah. had to come up with their own uh, kind of clinical questionnaires. In fact, which I'm using. And so I think... I'm I'm using a lot of the paperwork. I've kind of adapted it to for my clinic, oh, um, awesome. and have had to take out things like uh, for functional activities, carrying heavy weights on top of your head. I mean, that's something that Americans <laughs> don't do, but of course in Botswana, they do that. Uh, so I I think it'll be a great opportunity to to learn some really unique ways of describing pain uh, and describing spine problems. So that's a lot to look forward to. Have you yeah, been sure. have you been to other countries? Have you gone on any mission trips, these chiropractic mission trips that are out there? No, I actually have not done any of those mission trips. It was an interest of mine uh, when I first started chiro school. The first year or two, I was looking into doing a few of those. Um, and when I had originally contacted uh, whichever organization it was, they were asking for like a minimum of X number of students to go with to make it uh, feasible in terms of pricing. And I was like, I don't think I can find that many people to go for that amount of money this this early on. So I kind of had to throw that one on the back burner or back burner. But fortunately, it's coming around now with this opportunity. Yeah, I did one. There's a lot out there that are uh, short trips and you adjust hundreds of people, but then you never see them again. And so what I really like about World Spine Care is that follow up and being able to really manage the patient care over long, long term. Um well, this is awesome. I'm really looking forward to hear uh, what your experience is like. Maybe we can do this again by the time you're finishing up in World Spine Care uh, down in Moca in the Dominican Republic. I don't think I prepped you for this, but I always, always like to ask my guests to share what I call a tick pick. And that's one thing related to chiropractic in some way, uh, whether it's a book, a seminar, a YouTube clip, anything that a student should go check out. Do you have a recommendation off the top of your head? Oh, man. Um, I mean, a a couple of the books I've been reading recently, uh, obviously, Chris 1 and Chris 2 are are, are huge tools. Um, I would say a big thing for me that was a huge resource is, I mean, I'm sure people have heard this before, too, but the people you surround yourself with, the group I had through my three years at NYCC um, was a huge factor for me in terms of, you know, motivation, the day in the day out stuff, and just being with people who want to make you better, make themselves better is the biggest factor towards making you 
a great provider. And I'm not sitting here saying I'm a great provider, but I'm saying that I feel like I have the potential to become one because of the things I've learned with them and how I view chiropractic and what I want to help it become down the line. Can you share real quickly, what is your vision for chiropractic in the future? Oh man. Um, <laughs> I, I would say that my vision for chiropractic in the future is, is a big one. I, I see the potential that it has now. And I think if students, current docs and people who are even on the way out from the profession who have been there for 20, 30 years, if we all just kind of start collaborating our perspectives towards what it could be instead of having these little, little silos of, you know, what everyone wants it to be, or, you know, I want it to be my own kind of chiropractor or this, but we have to realize we're functioning under one profession essentially as it is. Um, I think if we focus all on that one one road down the line thing that we can have a, a system of healthcare that is, you know, it's um, cost effective, it's alternative, it's not invasive. And I think if chiropractors act as facilitators, like I mentioned earlier, for the patients, it's, hey, I want to be here to help you get through what your problem is in terms of back pain, whether it's neck, low back, whatever. We're going to identify it, we're going to treat it appropriately, and we're going to give you the tools to solve it on your own. That's the biggest thing because independence and education for patients is such an empowering factor. And that's probably the biggest thing that chiropractic can help to do. Absolutely. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for spending time with me. And uh, are you going to be sharing your experience while you're in, in the DR are you, online? Are you going to have a social media channel or a blog or anything? Yeah. So I think what I'm going to be doing is I'll probably, I'll probably make a separate Instagram account just to take um, any of the photos that I feel are worthwhile, put them up there. I'll, I'll don't know how much access to internet I'll have outside of the clinic. I mean, I know that the internet at the house where I'll be staying can be a little uh, iffy already from uh, talking to the clinician down there right now. But uh, Instagram, I'll try to do that my, as best as I can. And I also am planning to start doing a blog or something online. I don't know. I'll talk to Brendan McCann a little bit more about that. He's been a good friend who's definitely on top of that. Um, shameless plug for Brendan McCann's hands and training right there. If you haven't checked it out, go do that. But I'm going to definitely pick his brain and see uh, what info he can lend me about getting one of those set up so I can kind of keep track of my journey, put it out there for others who are interested in opportunities like this, or just want to, you know, see something cool that happens to me while I'm down there. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, let me know if you need help with that. I can definitely give you some tips as well. Um, do you have the Instagram account set up right now? I do not. Okay. I will be getting it together probably in the next coming days. And once I do, I'll put it uh, out there on my Facebook and anything else I can think of. I'll send it over to you as well if you want to blast it out there for anybody who listens as well. Yeah, we'll include it uh, in the show notes for this episode. All right, Dr. Lasky, thanks so much for spending time on Explore Chiropractic. Good luck in World Spine Care in Dominican Republic. Thank you very much, man. I love being on here. Thanks. Don't forget to try out Blinkist, Smarter You in 15 Minutes. Get your free three-day trial and access to a 1,000 best-selling nonfiction books transformed into powerful packs you can read in just 15 minutes. Go to exploringchiropractic.com slash Blinkist.